0: Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the BYU Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight.
1: And I'm Austin Lambert. Our mission here at the Life Science Museum is to inspire wonder, understanding, and reverence for our evolving planet. So with this podcast, we are here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community.
0: Visit our website, LSM.BYU.EDU for more information and to access notes from each episode.
1: Welcome to the Wildlife Science Podcast. Uh, we're here with Janine Auger and Hal Black. Uh, today we're going to be talking about bears and their research that they've done. Maybe we could just get some quick introductions. Janine, would you like to introduce yourself first?
2: Okay. Um, my name is Janine Auger, and currently I'm at the museum here managing the Western North American Naturalist, which is a quarterly academic research journal. Um, But I spent a lot of time in my (laughs) master's degree work and um, after that as a postdoc studying bears with Dr. Black. So we spent some years out on the book cliffs in the 1990s and and into the, our last bear just passed away in 2019. So it's long-term study.
0: How did you even connect with Dr. Black?
2: I was an undergraduate here at BYU, and I took um, mammology from Dr. Black and also uh, vertebrate zoology from him. And so when I was looking for a graduate program, I just thought his research was exciting. Um, Actually, I was going to study wild turkeys. And he and I, Hal and I, had worked a little bit together with some management people to get that started but the money just never arrived at the right moment for my graduate program and so um, despite that initial work that we'd done one day Hal came to me and said that he had this money to do black bear research and how would I like to just do that instead so it's a little bit of a
0: jump from turkeys from turkeys right at the time
2: Utah was trying to introduced turkeys into lots of different habitats, and and that has since happened. Lots of people have done research in Utah on turkeys, but I managed to get into the bears.
3: She might have left them or not have jumped so quickly to them, but she had known how many years it was going to dominate her life. (laughs) (laughs) That was in... That was 1991.
0: And then the last bear just died a few years ago. Yeah,
2: she was very old. She was 31 years old.
3: Anyways, it's my good fortune that Janine and a bunch of other kids found the bear stuff interesting. I mean, you know, they're charismatic animals, and not much had ever been done here with research in Utah. When we finished up on this old bear that just wouldn't die, several, Janine and two others in particular, would always come back and work the winter den work with us because it's always exciting.
1: And so was your primary focus throughout your career on black bears?
3: The last 25 years, yeah we sort of stumbled into it because one of my colleagues uh, was filled up with graduate students and he said he had this opportunity and he came to me and I said, yeah, that's fine. Let's do it.
1: So what led um, you, Hal, to, to being a professor at BYU?
3: Probably what got me the job over the other candidates is I spent two years after graduate school in Zambia in Africa. And so they viewed me as some sort of international traveler, I guess. (laughs) And uh, I was always interested in zoology, and so that's how I got the job here back in 75. You know, I've always liked all kinds of critters, but when the bear money came, it was like easy to move over. I've done work with bats and tropical ants and some tropical trees. We were lucky and and maybe smart by default uh, because we never kept going to the Division of Wildlife Resources or the Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management for a bunch more money. I thought, we can exploit these students. (laughs) Free labor, cheap labor. (laughs) Yeah, cheap labor because they wanted the experience, right? And so we were able to just keep a a reasonable budget for all these years, and it went on and on and on and on. And culminating in, uh, without money, we just followed this last old bear for the last 10 years. But she died a natural death, which is a rare thing for old bears in Utah or throughout their range in North America where they're hunted. Bears don't live to be old, and she is the oldest bear we know about. Isn't that right, Janine? We don't know about any other bear in Utah for sure that's lived her age. We saw her when she was first born, or not first born, when she was uh, without cubs. Yeah, four. She was four years old
2: and had not had cubs at that point, but did have cubs the next winter.
3: So then, this sounds crazy and it's hard to believe, we we kept track of her, changing her radio collar whenever we needed to, uh, about every two years. And we saw her in a den every year for 27 years since she was four.
0: So I was thinking about how both of you are birders. And our last episode was on birding. Tell us some experiences or why you like to bird as well. In fact, I took ornithology from Dr. Black and I remember the very first day we were out. We went out on a field trip. You said, "Do not tell your car insurance that you are a birder, or they'll raise your rates." <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> you, you just kind of follow the birds and drive right off the road, <laughs> stop, stop, and stop in the middle stop of the go. road.
2: So my thought about that is, with this old bear in particular, her name was Zena, and we named all of our bears, but. She had a home range, I guess, that was in the northeast part of our study area, and she must have been right on the flyway for sandhill cranes because every time we visited a den, almost every time, the sandhill cranes would fly overhead. This would be in the beginning of March, and we would hear them before we would see them, but always.
3: (laughs) There's another group of birds that we saw there regularly. We'd see uh, rosy finches. Oh. And we always tried to find the brown... Rosy Finch that's only known from Colorado. But.
2: I don't think we ever did find it, yeah. did we? We looked uh, and looked. That's awesome. And yeah. we named a bear Rosy Finch as <laughs> yeah. well because we saw a nice flock of Rosy Finches right before. We yeah.
3: Josh, a fr- mutual friend we have with Katie, Josh Heward, he was determined to find a brown Rosy Finch. It would have been a new record for Utah, which is a big deal for birders. But we threatened to get one and spray paint it. <laughs> <laughs> Take a picture and just... Let it.
0: all the birders in Utah go fly. Well, we could do it on a- April it. Fool's Day would be been a good time, you know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the pine Siskin story is funny. Uh, Josh Heward and another student went and wa- waited at a den where they saw a female, where they wanted to know if the female had cubs. So they waited back in the brush. And, and they noticed this bird coming to this entrance of the den, working around the uh, roots of the sagebrush that was poking down through into the den. And they watched carefully. And it was a bird called a pine siskin, which is sort of a nondescript little bird except for the beautiful yellow on the wings. It was harvesting hair from the bear that was caught in the roots
1: there when the bear would pass in and out of the den
3: and using it for nest material.
1: Now, yeah, what's one of the things I love about uh, this podcast is we've learned now about things as small as uh, like Antarctic microbes. Yeah. Or we talked about uh, microscopic viruses now we're getting bigger and bigger over time I think we, because we talked about birds now we're talking about bears uh, I don't know what we're going to do next we're going to have to come up with something bigger I know both of you said you kind of stumbled upon your research with bears but what about it really got you interested in that research?
3: Well they're big there's lots of stories right probably got
1: interested Goldilocks
3: <laughs> I. The thing about Goldilocks is the thing about the children's stories. They're so fun, and they're so wrong, <laughs> right? The thing that the papa bear would have done with Goldilocks, and again, with, the, the, he would have had her for dinner, but he would have also had his offspring, which is the cub, the young one that was there. But yeah, so, so these stories on bears are so funny about male bears being part of the family. There's no family groups in bears. The mating season, males are just interested in females. The idea of hibernation makes them pretty unusual because if uh, some of your colleagues here, if our colleagues have to go catch elk or bison or deer, it's a big deal. Helicopters, trapping devices, lures. But if a bear traps, then we didn't care if we ever trapped that bear again. If it was adult female, we were going to see in the den. So the idea that we have a big animal that's easily approached without equipment other than walking made that interesting and made them accessible. And then this whole idea, this whole idea that half of their life has spent sequestered away in the den is quite remarkable. Later in these projects, we get involved with a colleague... University of Massachusetts, Seth Donahue, who is interested in why bears can tolerate inactivity and not lose bone structure and integrity.
0: Back to the Goldilocks and the stories, I I had no idea that the male bears were, I guess, violent or dangerous to their (laughs) offspring.
3: Well, the the six months that bears are out of the den is pretty much the time just to eat.
0: I see. (laughs) So they're just looking.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and so they're not particular, I suppose. I loved to each tootsie rolls with popcorn, and I would think a bear, a big male bear would view a little brown cub sort of in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> pretty tender and uh, sweet.
2: When you think about the timing of family breakup with bears where the one-year-old bears leave their mothers, and the apparently the females become pretty... Uh, adamant that they leave uh. they'll they'll sort of chase them off uh be a little bit aggressive about having them stay away and that and one hypothesis for that is, is because the female's now coming on to a time when she'll be approached by males to breed again
0: oh so it's a protective thing
2: so it could be a protective thing Let's that see. she chases her offspring off
3: at or that she's point. just sick of them like te- yeah. teenagers <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hit get rid 18. of before the
3: terrible twos.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. It's been well put, yeah.
3: <laughs> she probably doesn't think in any way that the cubs will be endangered by this male. She's not nursing them now. Right. They're just there. Yeah. And uh, she has other interests. It, because her job of, is done, yeah. And, and because if she is intolerant of them, then they're going to, they finally get left in the woods. As a consequence of that, they aren't around when the big males approach her. So they get protection, but it's not necessarily, probably isn't at all her intention. I see. To chase them away so they'll be protected, so they'll be safer.
2: Mm. We we have to be a little careful in our language. Yeah, because (laughs) anthropomorphic. Large animals are very easy to anthropomorphize, and and we've done our share of it, for sure, especially (laughs) by naming them all.
1: (laughs) It's one thing you see a lot in in research, that correlation is not always causation. Yeah, Yeah, Exactly.
2: So the way I kind of came to the bear project, you know, I, I was a student at the time, so I had gone out with some graduate students of house that were prior to me, and they worked on the LaSalle Mountains. And so I had a little taste of going to a bear den, and, and so that was exciting. But the thing that it turned into for me was um, my master's degree was with... Uh, seed germination, actually, because I had taken a class on plant-animal interactions, and I was I was interested in this idea that bears ate a lot of fruit, like a lot. We had one bear scat that had 60,000 Oregon grape seeds in it, which Whoa. represented about 10,000 fruits, six seeds to a fruit, and
0: you think- <laughs> And that was just one scat. <laughs>
2: It was it was maybe two or three scats, but it was from a bear that had been in a trap. You think, wow, that's just a lot of investment for that plant, right? Do mm-hmm. these seeds get destroyed? Are they able to grow? What happens to these seeds? And that's kind of what got me interested in what I did for my master's degree was this idea of plant-animal interactions. I took those seeds out of black bear scat and you know, tried to grow them up in a laboratory and see what the timing of germination was and whether the seeds were viable and in fact they were viable and they they seem to get a little bit of advantage in timing because once a seed has been through a black bear um, the digestive tract whatever happens in there with the acid scarification um, allows the seed to imbibe water faster than it might normally without. Oh I see. So the timing of germination changes just a little bit.
3: My mother used to do that when I was a kid. She would take peas before planting them, maybe soak them in water for a day. And they might germinate. I don't know whether they did or not, but it was what mom did. And so in this way, some seeds get a little head start in the spring when germination comes.
0: You've gathered a ton of data from these bears over the years. From what I understand, you have a lot of graduate students that have done all kinds of projects.
2: Yeah, I counted them the other day. There were sixteen BYU graduate students that Hal advised. Wow, on, on
0: various bear projects. Would well, you want to tell us about any that are interesting or?
3: Jenny, she looked it up. Letting her tell you, <laughs> although they're all interesting.
2: <laughs> yeah, they were all interesting.
3: Tell me about tell him about uh, Mark and tell him the funny thing about his paper. Oh,
2: <laughs> Mark Seed. He decided he was going to simulate bear feeding on ants. So bears go around, and in the springtime, you know, there's just not a lot of things available. The deer and elk have not yet had their offspring, so there's not a lot of meat available. The fruits are not on until later in the summer and the fall. So bears are kind of reduced to trying to eat grass and ants and they look for uh ant pupae which are soft and 100% digestible. Ant adults are hard because they're they have exoskeletons of chitin and that's not at all digestible. And in fact, when you see a a scat where bears have been eating ants, you can count the ant heads hmm. from the adults in the scat, but you never see any remains of of the the young, the young ants, the larvae. So what they do is they go in, you know, they they're just traveling and they can they can uh, turn rocks over. So you you might see a line where a bear's been through and rocks are just turned over, and they're looking for ants underneath those rocks. So Mark C. decided he was going to simulate this, and he his question was something like, if a bear knew what kind of a rock to turn over, could foraging efficiency be increased? because maybe ants are selecting certain kinds of rocks that are exposed on hillsides in the sun, or what size of a rock, things like that. So he did this. He took a dust buster, and he turned over rocks and sucked up the, the <laughs> ants on the underside of the he had, rocks.
3: He was a two-gun <laughs> scientist, too. So he had one on, hanging on each side.
2: And he, in fact, he did some fancy principal components analysis, and he determined that, yes, in fact... Your efficiency could be increased. I can't remember by what percentage, but it was, you know, significant. If you knew what kind of rock to turn over. But in the thesis itself, he, he kind of forgot to describe the rock.
0: <laughs> so there, there's a difference, but we don't know which what? one. The,
2: if you looked at the principal components uh, analysis, you could probably kind of derive it because it's all, all the data is in there. <laughs> in the discussion, he kind of forgot to tell us what kind of rock it is.
3: So they like to bring these the eggs and stuff up where it's warm in the spring. That's one thing we do know. A flat rock heats up. When you turn it over, there are probably more young ants than the adults there. And and we Josh and I ate pupae. And the ants don't get that nasty little gland until they pupate into adults. So you can eat them, and it's kind of like eating nothing. Tootsie rolls? No, they're not that good. <laughs> <laughs> uh we played around with it. Now you turn over, get a place with lots of flat rocks, on maybe a southwest exposure, and you can get the equivalent of a Big Mac, uh, <laughs> pretty quick. And that's all good, as, Dan- as Janine said. And that's all good food. It's stuff we eat. It's just ants. It's just a little small pig, or beef, or something. <laughs> but you eat enough of them, it's the same.
0: I'm just gonna take your word for that one. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, you can just, just try one. It's they just sort of melt on your tongue.
0: Janine, yeah. have you tried one? No.
1: <laughs> but she does eat mushrooms, so
2: I have tried some very <laughs> nasty tasting seeds, though. Mm. So it I, sounds
1: like you have to taste whatever you're studying, right? Because <laughs> I, I, continued, I so continued. Hopefully, you didn't my taste <laughs> the bear scat. <scotch. laughs> no,
2: I continued my seed research with uh, in my PhD work with desert heteromyids, who are big seed collectors, they're rodents. So I tasted a lot of seeds, because I wanted to know why it was they liked certain seeds
1: over <laughs> others.
0: like likes not taste. Yeah, <laughs> Actually, it was taste. Oh, really?
2: <laughs> that, yeah, I came up with that.
1: Well, I hope the follow-up research has been done to teach the bears uh, <laughs> yeah. which are the best rocks to turn over.
3: Yeah, they already know. <laughs> yeah, that's what he determined. He determined that they weren't turning up randomly as well
1: well it sounds like for d- when doing bear research you have to really get in and get your hands <laughs> dirty uh and you even mentioned getting up close to bear dens what kind of experiences did you have about going about this bear research is it dangerous research to do or or what what different methods do you use when when encountering and researching bears well
3: just quickly and
1: Janine answered that
3: it is dirty business because here's what we haven't talked about. You have to have some way to uh, to attract the bear to the trap site. And the best way is to have rotten meat. So we would go down to Cooney's, who process dead animals, and get 55-gallon barrels. And foolishly, when we first started, just, just to make this gross, you could fill it up with meat because you'd take it out for 10 days or so in the field. Let it rot and putrefy. After a day or two in the sun in the summer, that full barrel of meat would want to escape as it swells and <laughs> so, so we learned to only fill the barrel half full. <laughs> <laughs> Running around on four wheelers, some another story there, but shirts off playing strumming a guitar like you're having a good time in the mountains is great, sunny, beautiful. But the only thing that makes it less glorifying is it on the back of the cooler of your four-wheeler was full of putrefying meat <laughs> to be packed to, to to freshen up a trap or set a trap. Yeah, so that's kind of dirty. But anyway, Janine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it, it was my opinion that the the bears were not the danger in the research. It was the machinery that we had to ride around on, the four-wheelers, the snowmobiles. We had accidents with those, and I personally broke my arm on a four-wheeler. Well or as I came off of a four wheeler <laughs> as it was careening down a hill.
3: Technically you broke it not when you're coming off, but when you when I landed. The, when That's I landed with my arms
2: out forward. <laughs> it was a classic <laughs> radius break.
0: Was there ever a time that you felt danger or threatened or scared?
2: Sometimes when you're at a den and the bear is a little feisty, yeah, you can
3: Afraid they, they can do little mock charges, but most of the times when they we poke in, even though it's since it's March, they're still in a state of seclusion, but but they're not a, in a deep slumber and they would see us and maybe retreat if retreat was possible or turn around, uh, which often was not what we preferred because they would present this butt of a target <laughs> <laughs> where we wanted to inject them with the hypodermic device. But, uh, and there was sometimes a, a fake charge or two, but, but we didn't work with big males. It was only adult females. Mm. But, yeah, we never packed weapons or anything like that. We weren't trying to be macho. It just turns out it's more weight to carry uphill.
2: We hosted a black bear workshop here at BYU. It's been a long time ago, but we had about 120 bear researchers in the same room. And and we had Steve Herrero, who's an expert, um, on black bear attacks and he asked the question of this room full of people Has have any of you ever had a an incident where someone where the researcher was injured by a black bear and there was not a hand that was wow. raised yeah they were all people who did exactly the same thing that we do um, visiting bears in dens and trapping bears in the summertime
0: I mean that's a misconception I think probably a lot of people have right is that it's dangerous scary work right know. right
3: Black bears aren't, in particular, unlike Grizzlies, are not protective of the cubs much.
0: We had
2: times where the female black bear would leave the cubs in the nest depression and kind of go up into the den a little farther.
3: Mm. Or even at one time where she just left the den and the cubs sitting there by himself. But Gary Alt, who has worked with the bears forever back in Pennsylvania, was took his father out to show him. He was deep in the den. His feet were not visible, as he crawled in to inject the bear. And we were always aware, you know, if, if the bear could come out or something. So he was in there on his dad's first trip. His dad heard him yell, and the bear came out of the den over the top of Gary. <laughs> he ran over. <laughs> it's like, where's my son, you know? But, uh. <laughs> so we, we we were aware of situations like that where we said, thought, since the bear was, most of the time we ever had, but since the bear was going to leave, and so we just pull out or stop to the side, and
2: yeah. And all the times that I ever was in a situation where we were releasing bears from a trap situation, uh, as soon as we pulled the door, the bears were out of there like a bullet. Mm. <laughs> they very rarely even turned around to look at us.
0: They just wanted to be way out. Yeah. yeah, that's
2: their that's a black bear's typical behavior.
0: Moving on to another question. Um, I know you guys have done a lot of outreach with your research and visited elementary schools and things like that. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Well, um, when people learn or students learn, it's just exciting for most people. We realized early on in our careers with bears that it was really a crazy thing if you take someone out to see a big, large animal. I mean, walk up, and here's a bear, and you can... Rub its here once it's anesthetized and see it and see the cubs, that it was just a tremendous experience and and again Janine and I I think I can speak for her here when we the last time we went to to den it's still like fun and exciting, but exciting because of what you're seeing and especially when you have young people there so we've calculated that over the thirty years roughly we've had about three thousand visitors to dens and it's just. You know, people write us letters, uh, emotional letters about, I can't believe we got to touch this with my child. And here's, so everybody has a whole bunch of Christmas cards with bears (laughs) every (laughs) year. (laughs) This is what we did, you know. So that's what this hibernation business permits. Right. So once the bears collared, we know where they're going to be that winter.
2: Yeah, so one time we went to a third grade class, the teacher was a friend of mine. It was just over here at Wasatch Elementary here in Provo. When we got there and kind of surveyed the room, there was one student who was tooling around the room in a wheelchair, and, and she was fun and spunky. And and it just so happened that day I had brought and intending to show this news clip of a university-age student that we'd had out at a bear den, and and her name was Kim Yeoman. And she had spina bifida and was had mobility issues. So... So the football team, the BYU football team, had sent several players to carry Kim to a den using some search and rescue equipment. And and so I had footage of that, and I showed that to the class. And one little boy in the back, he piped up and said, hey, Emma could do that. And Emma was the young lady in the wheelchair, and we said, she sure could. And Hal typically would invite uh, anybody that we, you know, did outreach with, he would invite them to come to see a bear live. Many people took him up on that. And Emma's family was uh, really outdoorsy, and they always were taking great pains to make sure Emma was included in any way she could be. But at that point, she was getting a little bit big for a for a backpack.
3: She was injured in a family outing up Provo Canyon. When a microburst perhaps pu- pushed a big cottonwood tree down over the f- party and she was, her spine was severed and her grandmother was killed and a cousin when she was like three or four years old. Well, some of the people who had helped dig her out from under the tree.
2: The first responders.
3: Stayed close to them. And through another mutual friend who was a, f- a fireman, we kind of got to know this family and then. Short story would be this this some of these guys retired and they were sort of machinists and guys that could do everything. And they started to develop some sort of a chariot, a device, an all terrain device. So if you go on the internet and look up Emma X three, you'll find now a commercial device for people who handicapped people to get out and do wild things and we like to think. I think appropriately, not this invitation that we made in that classroom started this commercial enterprise of accommodating people uh, who would otherwise not have this experience, and so oh. Emma went a couple of times, and uh, yeah, and so
2: the early versions of this of this all terrain balloon tired wheelchair were made for the Bear Project to get Emma to the den.
0: Yeah, it sounds like that invitation was what got the ball rolling, and it's named after her. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And I've seen them around. Have you seen those, Austin?
1: The I was going to say, I just looked it up on the internet, and I, I have seen a couple before.
0: Yeah. yeah. How did she like the bears? We should We've got picture. great pictures, yeah. <laughs> it was very, them. very great.
2: And and we had cubs that time, so the best. <laughs> cubs are the best.
3: <laughs> you know, my wife's an English person, and so we kind of have to get interested in poetry. There's a great poem that almost makes me emotional. Janine is holding a cub. And these two little girls are sitting there looking like that. And then then another picture of Emma holding the cub and smiling. And one of the firemen who was there when rescued her, his hand is there. And this poem, if I may just quote a line, it says, Life has loveliness to sell all beautiful and splendid things. Blue waves whitened on a cliff soaring fire. That sways and sings, and children's faces looking up, holding wonder. I can't say this holding wonder like a cup. It's an incredible poem for that image and that reality that those little girls. Well, I won't say sorry, because I'm not sorry for tears. That. Where
0: that poem come from? Yeah, we can
3: Sarah a... Sarah Teasdale. Yeah, you can Google it up. It's a great poem.
0: Thanks for sharing that.
3: Yeah, it's. A, in fact, I shared that kind of that same way at a technical meeting in uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho and uh, a couple of colleagues, their people <coughs> came up and
1: uh, were impressed
3: about the poem being so good and about the circumstances under which we used it. So
1: yeah, I feel that the line that you did share, it captures uh, the beauty and, and also the I think the importance of outreach.
3: Yeah, thank
1: you. Uh, yeah. It, it paints yeah. beautifully the experience that you shared of, of taking these kids to Bear Dens, letting them experience a little bit of what you got to experience all those years. Yeah. Spending time with bears.
0: Yeah, that's what we try to do here at the museum is inspire wonder, right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So that they can become the next generation of scientists and and help protect this beautiful
3: earth. Well, you know, in a way, we've said this, I think those visitors and then the classrooms that we reached over and over again with bear videos and stuff. It was probably the most germane, useful thing about the whole year, all these years.
1: What other important things did you learn, as you spent your time researching black bears?
3: We did a lot of the same things people all over North America have done with bears, and looking at age distributions and age at which females attain maturity, sexual maturity, because it varies widely over the. There's lots of food, better bear habitat than we have in Utah. It's not unusual to have sometimes and three-year-old bears as mothers, where uh, ours average is what Janine, more like five, five or six. So we needed to get that kind of feel for Utah's populations, and so we did all kinds of things from food habits, uh, age distribution, population structure, think habitat use, all those kind of fun, fun necessary things. Probably. What's most remarkable about bears physiologically and biochemically is, is something I'm going to make Janine talk about with, a, with this period of inactivity. I'll set it up if you don't want. Do you want me to sing a song?
0: Yeah, I do want you to sing a song. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you even asked. <laughs>
3: <laughs> There's a great song about children's songs, and one of them is called Can't Wait to Hibernate. And the lyrics go something like this. Sometime in September, when the sky begins to fall, and the nights are getting colder, I know it's time to go. I can't wait to hibernate. A few months of sleep makes a bear feel great. I can't wait to hibernate. Can't wait to hibernate. And there's more verses, but it's really <laughs> cute. But this hibernation business, the six months of inactivity, For an animal the size of a bear is pretty different.
2: Yeah, the bone work started when we saw a paper of Seth's. The conclusion was that bears don't lose bone mass as they age. But when we got to reading the paper closely, the oldest bear that they had in the sample was only about nine years old. Ah. And we said to ourselves... That's not an old bear. That's a bear that's just entering the prime of its life because Utah has a fairly old population structure. The the ages of the bears are skewed older than they are in other states because other states hunt bears pretty aggressively. And oftentimes the bears don't live to be over five or six years old. And a nine-year-old bear in Michigan might be considered an old bear because most of them don't live that long. But Utah, we regularly encountered bears in our trapping sample that were 15
0: to 18 years old. And your Xena was 31, Zena Xena right?
2: lived to be 31, and that's really ancient <laughs> for yeah. a bear. At some point, I think Hal called Seth Donahue and said, we need to get you an older sample so that we can do this work kind of work again and and see if as they age even older than nine or 10 years old, then does that hold true?
3: And he was so great. He said, bring it on, you know. Yeah. We we can collaborate on this. So we thought. So we asked
2: hunters in Utah when they harvested a bear if they would bring in not only the skull, which they have to check with the Division of Wildlife, but if they would also bring in a femur for Mm -hmm. the research purposes. So a letter went out to all of them, and they they really did a great job of providing the sample.
0: So let me back up. The premise is that, Because they hibernate, their bone structure should disintegrate. Yeah,
2: because with humans, if you go to bed for three days and don't get out of bed and bear weight on your leg bones, you can measure the bone loss at that point. After
3: three days. You you increase calcium in your blood. Ah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and so this is a big topic of research for humans, especially in the context of, say, space flight or people who have to be on bed rest for whatever recovery reasons. And it takes a long time to regain that bone once you've lost it. Yeah, this kind of research is is funded by the National Institutes of Health and by NASA. So we were able to provide that sample of old bears, and and it held true that bears, as they age, don't lose bone mass. And bears, when they hibernate and they're relatively stationary, they also don't lose bone mass.
1: Well, it's so interesting that we can take these connections from different parts of the earth and animal kingdom and, and yeah. hopefully learn things that are going to, to benefit human health. As well, yeah. Just to address address our listeners, if our audience tends to be students and and people that are actively looking for ways that they can get involved or maybe they're, they're just starting to get interested in nature and, and the world around us. What are th- things that you would recommend – Things that our listeners can do to better help protect bears or any of the organisms that you've been able to study?
3: You know, I was thinking people, if they want to do something, then it's no longer work. I want to do this. And we say we're working at the bears, but really that wasn't really work. Even though it's work, you know. So if something can be thought of as something you enjoy, then it, it's no longer work. If you want to contribute, then it's no longer work. There's so many things around with the Division of Wildlife Resources, other cons- agencies, government, and otherwise, that people can do to get involved. And if they do that with, with minds that are open to differences um, that people are going to run into, but they want to understand that, then it's, it's, it'll be easy for them to do it.
0: I had never thought of the motivation and the intent is what will make it not feel like work or recycling and taking care of the small things that seem like the extra step and yeah. it's drudgery. But when you have that love and openness and it's doesn't feel like work. Yeah.
1: And choosing to change our perspective and, and view the world woven together yeah. as beautifully as it truly is. Yeah. It, it changes a lot of the way that we, we might act and live our lives.
2: Yeah. I was thinking about this um, and what came to mind for me was a, presentation I heard Harry Green give here at the museum some Mm. years ago, and he's a well-known herpetologist, and he said that he wished he could give all young naturalists a gift, And, and that gift would be to take them to Africa so that they could stand by themselves out on the savanna amidst all the very large animals in such a vast landscape so that In doing so, you could develop a respect for the planet and also think about how you're connected into that landscape. And I thought about that in terms of my own experience. You know, I've never been to Africa, but I have been to the book cliffs, which is also a very large and remote landscape where there are large mammals running around and they're a little bit dangerous and... You can you can stand there in that landscape, even as impacted by humans as it is, and still feel a lot of reverence. And I, I think I had my own experience in that way on the Bear Project. Having people get outside and into wild places is a good route to start developing that respect.
0: And uh, making observations, right? I think sometimes we go outside and we forget to really look and see things.
3: You know, in mythology, remember, I said, you kids have seen these birds all your life. You've just never looked at them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I remember also (laughs) I had been studying lichens, and you told me it's time to quit looking down and look up.
3: (laughs) 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 This has been fun and uh, emotional and intellectual a little bit, hopefully, and and maybe for our, our listeners they can feel free to make contact with Janine and I or you guys and if they want any follow-up. Uh,
0: yeah, uh, I'll put your, your emails or something in the show notes if you're okay with that. Kay.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, thank you, Janine and Hal, for, for joining us. We just want everyone to remember to, to view the world around us and, and stay connected.